Amen. There are a number of themes that are familiar to us at the Christmas season. The condescension of our Savior, leaving as the prince and heir of all things the throne of heaven and coming down to earth. And there to be mistreated, there to walk a life of deprivation, of poverty, and of rejection. A common Christmas theme echoed in our songs and in the scriptures. Another common Christmas theme is his salvation. Of course, that's the purpose of his coming. He didn't come just to make a spectacle or so that we might sing Christmas songs. He came to die. He came to give us new life. He, gave to, he, he came to give us forgiveness of sins. He came to present a hope for the future as well. And on this first Sunday in Advent, we have talked about him being the Prince of Peace. And we have sung of it. And he, indeed, he is. But for the last century or so, some of our Christmas celebrations have become so romanticized and so traditional in their scope and style that we forget one of the obvious things that jump right out of us at the Christmas story. So I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, first of all, to a startling passage in Luke chapter 1 in the Song of Zechariah. Here we will see. Zechariah has been told that he will be the father, late in life, of a baby who will have something to do with this Savior. And he breaks into song, as Mary does. And we read in verse, beginning in verse 69, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, and to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Here introduced in the earliest sections of the birth of Jesus Christ and the narratives of it is this matter of conflict. He will, verse 71, Bring salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, of course, there was great anticipation of this Messiah who would come, who had been foretold so long ago. And that he would, of course, throw off the hated Roman authorities. But it seems that there was more involved than that. If we turn now to Matthew just briefly in chapter 1 and 2, we find something that jumps out at us when we notice it, but often is underreported. Notice now several successive events. Verse 18, chapter 1, Matthew. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. 
And because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. This is a narrative summation of what must have been a volcanic situation for, for Joseph and for Mary. All of a sudden, a tremendous event has happened in their life, which they, in one way of saying it, had nothing to do with. Joseph is proceeding in joy and happiness toward the consummation of his marriage with the woman of his choice, Mary. And before it happens, and before the wedding takes place, when she was only pledged to be married to Joseph, he was, she was found to be with child. Unexpected. Challenging. Lots of conversation. What could this mean? Not only conversation between Joseph and Mary, but conversation between Joseph and God and Mary and God. And Joseph forged a plan. I'm going to divorce her. Try to save her honor. Take this on myself. We don't know the details. But his life was turned upside down. Secondly, we come to chapter 2. And it says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there in verse 1, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east of Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He had a rival, and all Jerusalem with him. I haven't been able to find anyone who can tell us what that looked like. It, the word here is agitated. They weren't excited about the coming of Jesus and what they were learning by rumor about the Magi. It seems that they were irritated and agitated by it instead of thankful and anticipatory. That word disturbed for us can mean uh, slightly positive, usually mostly negative. In this case, the word agitated is sort of like what happened to John the Baptist when he found out he was in prison and found out he was probably going to be killed and he was highly agitated about how does this all fit together? So we shouldn't think that when Jerusalem heard from the Magi that a star had led them to this baby and that this baby was going to be now king of the Jews, that they had the anticipation of a, of a crowd before the kickoff. Cheering, yes, roaring, disturbed in that sense. On the contrary, they're agitated. And disrupted, and disturbed. Not just the king who now has a rival, we could understand that, but something has gone through the people and upset them. We just read a little further, and we begin in verse 13. When they had gone, when, when uh, the, the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and go home. No. Escape. Flee. Run. Get out. Get up. Get up and take the child and his mother, perhaps in the middle of the night, perhaps right now. Stay there until I tell you, once you get to Egypt, for Herod is going to search for this child to kill him. And now this troubled pregnancy, or at least questionable pregnancy, 
has been compounded. Just when things seem to be settled in, the child is born, he is settling into the family, they are beginning to get used to this, now they must get up and without warning and without so much as a farewell, I suppose, not going back to Nazareth to get their things, they take their trip to Egypt. Then verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And this in fulfillment of prophecy, as he goes on to write. And so Joseph has a dream and learns of an unexpected pregnancy. Jerusalem is disturbed, and Herod now has a rival. The Holy Family is taken up into Egypt in, the, in a sense in the middle of the night without warning to flee and to live on their own with what? A little bit of money they brought with them for the census? That's it. A little bit of clothing that they had? They hadn't even established themselves as a family unit really yet in their hometown. Zechariah is struck dumb. Elizabeth herself has a pregnancy that's quite unexpected. The star appears for those stargazing magi in a way that, that disturbs them and gets their attention and jostles them on their way to the east, from the east. The heavenly host appear before the shepherds. The Holy Family must make this trip, of course, down for the census. The angels are appearing here, there, and everywhere. This is more than a disturbance. This is a series of disruptions in the whole political and relational and religious section of these people's lives. And not just on earth. The heavenly host, the angels, the heavenly body of the star, and the, and the magi following. If we didn't know of the comfort of Christmas... If we didn't know the rest of the story, we would have to say that we have one thing after another here that is unwelcome, disruptive, and even, as Zechariah said, something that an enemy would cause, not a friend. And big questions are now addressed in these events. Questions like, who was the father of Jesus? Questions that descend down to today. Who was the king of the Jews? Certainly down to Pilate's day, the answer was unclear. What kind of savior would this Messiah be? This Emmanuel, this Jesus, what would he be like? I want you to see the uncertainty of these times in the lives of the people. I want you to see that Jesus' coming was not a piece of cake, an easy downhill slope, a nice and smooth entrance. There were disruptions all over the place. When he left, when he died, an earthquake. These are earthquakes in the lives of Herod, of Joseph, of Mary, of the Magi, 
of the families of the innocent children who are killed. This is a terrible time for almost everyone. Very few people untouched by this in at least this part of the world. Jerusalem is disturbed, not just Herod's court, and the families and the people that we have mentioned. And then we recall that Jesus said later, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. We can see it now. The sword has fallen on the necks of the little baby boys. The disruptions have started in the family of Joseph and Mary and in Jerusalem. This is representative of a cosmic conflict. If we read the Old Testament into the New, if we see the background, we shouldn't be surprised. Because the one who would crush Satan's head has now come to take his place in fulfillment of prophecy and to be the Savior. The events now foretold are about to unfold. There's going to be a display of the power of God, and the devil hates this. So he comes to disrupt and divide in any way he can. Not because he cares anything for them, but because he cares what happens to him through the Savior. Furthermore, we see evidence of personal challenges. This wasn't easy for any of the people directly involved. We've alluded already to Mary and Joseph's difficulties, to Zechariah and Elizabeth's, to the Magi who made the difficult journey, to to Herod who found himself with a rival. How would they respond? Christ still challenges us. His coming, his work in our lives still disrupts and overturns the day-to-day norm and equilibrium. He's still in the business of bringing challenge and faithful confrontation to his people. This, of course, is really not surprising when we read the Old Testament. If we go now back to Isaiah 9... As Kevin read earlier this morning in our, in our candle lighting. And we read the part of that chapter that we don't like as much, that we don't find so much comfort in. We find that this is all predicted normal. Nevertheless, verse 1, there will be no gloom for those who were in distress. For in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. For the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. That's the normal reading of the, of the Sunday in, in, in Advent. That's the normal section that we see the most of. And then we usually skip down. But there is verse 3. 
You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And indeed it will, but it will come breaking through the conflict that's described even in the first few verses of chapter 9. Jesus will break upon the scene, but only in the midst of great agitation and upheaval. And he will come and be our Redeemer as he begins to defeat his enemies. Salvation from our enemies, as Zechariah says, but only out of the darkness. For the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The fact is, he came to die. And we live in the shadow of death. Without this light, there is no hope for those who die. In these days, in this time, in our century, much debate about this, and people would rather not talk about it. We try to get all of our gusto and significance and our happiness here. We don't want to think about the life to come. And if we're asked about it, we either say it's irrelevant or we explain it away or say, I don't care. But just imagine this instance. Suppose someone breaks into your house this week and says with a weapon, I'm going to kill you, but I'm going to give you a couple hours to enjoy yourself. You can do whatever you want. Get on the phone and call people. Go take a brief trip. Go buy something. Do whatever you want. It's just that in two hours I'm going to end your life. Would you enjoy those two hours? The base note of our lives is that we know we're going to die. And any significance that we find here, any, any hope that we have here is going to be diminished and taken away and lost. And you can't do anything about it. There's no way, the Bible says, even to postpone it. So what to do? We live in, dark, in darkness. We live in the shadow of such a truth. And we see the results of it all around us. So we take comfort in things, pleasure, this world. We take satisfaction in the little joy we might find here on earth. What do you do to handle the dark? Bible says in, in Isaiah that people living in darkness have seen a great light, but we do live in darkness. We are going to die. It can't be avoided. 
Not only that, to follow Christ is to be experiencing conflict with Satan and with ourselves. But the Bible says a light has shined in that darkness. And quoting Bonhoeffer here, that death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom, it says. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and this great light has given us hope for real and lasting peace. In the meantime, there's great agitation. We wonder ourselves, what can this mean? And we have to process this whole, all these faith questions about, am I a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? And how can I trust God like Joseph did when he learned that Mary was with child, not by him? How can I trust God as Jerusalem surely must have during the time of the slaughter of the innocents? Can I lose such things, such precious little things, and can I go on? Can I be sustained in the midst of loss? Can I rebuild my life? George Herbert says this, Death used to be an executioner, but for the Christian, and because of the gospel, Jesus had made death just a gardener. All death can do now is to plant me in his love and make me come up in ways I've never been before. This is the gospel of Christmas. We live in darkness. Mankind is covered with darkness and foolishness that results, groping without the light. But a light has come, and we didn't make it come. It was given to us. Unto us a son is given. This is the great light of our hope. This is the great gift. Now we have this tradition of gift giving. And most of the time when I hear that explained, it's it's say, well, you know, people brought gifts to Jesus. You know, the Magi, they had their gold and their frankincense and their myrrh. They They didn't really exchange gifts with him, but they brought gifts to honor him. And so I want to give you a gift But indeed, those are only faint echoes of the supreme gift of the Son. The Son who lived from all eternity in perfect harmony with his Father. Never a cross word. Never an unsuspecting event. Always total and perfect joy, peace, and prosperity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is given to us because we are in the darkness and we need light. And so these names. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. The mighty God was born, not just that he didn't just show up and tell us things. He did things. And that's why we exchange gifts at Christmas time. Because we have been given the supreme gift. Not something that we together asked for or purchased but something that we couldn't do without if we were to have light or life. 
And it has been given to us. We didn't earn it after the fact. It was given up front. When God came, he came in the flesh. In the flesh, he gave himself. He sent an angel as a messenger of this truth. But he sent himself as the gift. And it is not just a story of hope and uplift, an inspiring tale of giving. It's a gift based on not what we do or how we live, or if we, are believe, if we believe that we are saved by the teachings of Jesus, we are saved by his record. And with him comes all the glory and holiness and justice and righteousness and power of heaven itself. It comes down and descends in him upon us, and it is given to us. So we now have and are an inheritance and co-heirs with Christ that is just astonishing. Stop with me a minute and think about this. How great is the Father's love for us that we should be called His children. And that is what we are. He has gathered us into His family and He has done it all. We can't lose it because we didn't do anything to gain it. It can't be taken from us because we didn't hold it to ourselves. It was given to us as a gift and placed to our account in a bank that never fails. Tremendous transformation. And you say, well, most of the time when I get something, I've earned it. Yes, that's true. Most of the time when I receive a gift, it's expected that I would give something back. Yes, that's true. But not this gift. Not this time. This is the uniqueness of the Christmas story. That he would give himself for us without merit on our part. Without our purchasing or earning or deserving it. The people walking in darkness have earned a great light, have have found a great light. No, they have seen a great light. And it has been because the, the great light has descended upon them and brightened their whole world. Open this gift anew. I know most of you consider yourselves to be Christians, and I consider yourself to be, you to be Christians, and so this wouldn't be the first time. But we need to hear it again and again and again. For it is the only thing that melts our heart and calls forth enduring devotion. Everything else is just religion. Everything else is just duty and ought to and good citizenship. But when you see you are loved in a way that cannot be lost, and that you have been loved to such an extent that it can't be measured, then it's over. We're just running out the clock. We're just taking a knee and adoring the one who gave himself for us. So what's the application? 
This was done and is done to make you deeply relational. God wants to be personal with you. He wants to be your father. Earlier this week, when we came home, there was a package on the front steps delivered by UPS or FedEx or somebody. They didn't wait for us to get there. They didn't let us open it in front of them. They didn't care whether we got the gift or not. They just had a job to do, and they dropped it off and left it there. If it rained, it rained. If it didn't, it didn't. But God doesn't deliver like that. He wants a relationship. He waits around. And in creating tumult in Joseph's life, he created great depth, too. This great gift is there to make us relational with our Father. Jesus, our brother and friend, he is not just a concept. He is personally interested in you. And with him comes the Holy Spirit to dwell within you so that every moment of every day, everywhere and every time, you can just call on him and know that he will answer you. Secondly, this is intended to make us happily material. What do I mean? It means that we shall have shalom, reconciliation with this world. Now and in the future, there will be wholeness and flourishing. There will be inner peace. There will be a reconsummation of of the new heavens and the new earth, a, a new creation. This world does matter to God, and at Christmas, God moved into a very bad neighborhood, and he began rehabilitation. We can love our neighbors, too. This world and life has value, not just the next world, but now. We're not just running out the clock. We're not just waiting for the second coming. We are enjoying Eternal life, as Jesus said, we have it now and we will experience it fully later. And we can begin to see the reconciliation of relationships and nature and all the things that we need for full flourishing as human beings. So we can see our things and our world holistically now. Shalom is not just peace between brothers, it's peace with all of God's creation. And then finally, this will make us free to be emotional. He is a wonderful counselor. He's not remote, but he comes into our lives bringing joy that we can also share with others. Christmas is an emotional time, not just because it's romanticized, not just because of the memories, not just because of the Victorian decorations. Christmas is, is, is deeply emotional because we have connected with the Counselor who wants to help us, who is interested in our welfare, and who has given himself so that we might have life. This is the light shining. But let's remember the beginning of our message today. It shines in a very dark place. And his coming does bring disruptions 
not just to the world in general or to the unbeliever, but to Mary and Joseph, to the parents of those little boys. There is a cosmic conflict going on. Jesus is the victor, but the final victory is not yet clear, not yet openly acknowledged, not yet apparent to all. And so in the meantime, many unpleasant things come even to his children. Many disruptions, many conflicts. Let us trust him with those and rise like Joseph and Mary did faithfully to meet them and to see that though it makes no sense to us and though they are not welcome developments, they can be also seen in God's providence to be good and helpful. Disease is a difficult thing, a mark of sin. But God has used it again and again and again in people's lives to enrich their lives, to deepen their faith, to strengthen their relationship. And so conflict and disruption can be met with joy. For he is the prince of peace. Indeed, as it says in Isaiah 9, he is the prince of peace, but his coming causes us to seek him. Let us pray. What a gift, O Lord, what a gift you've given us through your Son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We who were not his people have become and been made his people. And we thank you so much for that, the richness of that gift. We only now begin to understand it. We have all eternity to say thank you. Lord Jesus, you have been so good to us and the disruptions you bring to our lives. We ask that you might shine through, help us with them, be that light to which we look. Be that guide and help through various circumstances, welcome and unwelcome. Help us with our daily struggles. And help us like Mary and Joseph to bear up under almost unbelievable circumstances. The unexpected pregnancy, the flight to Egypt, the disruption of their lives. But you graced them through it all. You sustained them. You helped them. And so we pray that you will help us. In Jesus' name, amen.